every software application has secrets. User passwords and database credentials must be managed carefully because poor access controls can lead to disastrous scenarios. Vault is a tool for secret management developed at HashiCorp, a company that builds software tools for application delivery and infrastructure management. Seth Vargo is a software engineer and open source advocate at HashiCorp, and in today's episode, he discusses the advantages of having a single tool to manage all of your secrets. If you are not a security expert, don't worry. We discuss some of the basics of security, and if you are a security expert, you will appreciate the comparisons we discuss between Vault and other tools that have been used for secret management. Seth Vargo is a software engineer and open source advocate with HashiCorp. Seth, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So today we are talking about secret management, and we haven't done too many shows about this aspect of security. So I want to start from a fundamental level. What is a secret? So this is a great question, Jeff, and the answer is actually it depends. So there are very obvious things that are secrets, things like social security numbers and passwords that we always think of as being secret or sensitive. But then there's other types of data like a phone number or a home address where that data we don't traditionally think of as secret, but if it got in the wrong hands, depending on your industry or your business model, uh, it could be devastating. You know, we look at the, the uh, leaks that happened at LinkedIn and Ashley Madison, where you know hundreds of names and email addresses and phone numbers, millions of them have been released, and we never considered that information to be secret, but now look at all the devastation that it's causing. So you know, part of it's an obvious decision, but then the other half of it is really a business decision of, of what data do you consider to be sensitive. So you're talking here about the difference between secret information and sensitive information, or maybe this exists somewhere along a gradient. How does the level of sensitivity and the level of secrecy change how we want to uh, give access privileges on these different types of information? For sure. So the more sensitive the information, the more restricted that access should be. And we ultimately get to a point in an organization where we have to trade uh, access and ACL permissions in favor of practicality and things like auditing and logging. So you can create a really tight lo- you know, lockdown system, but then nobody can access the data and it becomes useless at that point. Uh, instead, we can rely on things like logging and less, less controlled ACLs, but more advanced logging to find out when the data has been accessed, use things like anomaly detection to identify whenever we think a data breach is occurring or has occurred, and then mitigate from there. You've referred to a set of problems that exist within what you call secret management 1.0. How would you describe this world of secret management, secret management 1.0? So uh, when I talk about secret management 1.0, I refer to really a pre-Volt world. Uh, And there were a number of problems that you may be experiencing in your own organization. You have secret sprawl. So what I mean by that is you have secrets everywhere. Some are in a text file. Some are maybe shared via a company Dropbox account. You might be using LastPass or 1Password. But ultimately, there's it's, it's all decentralized. There's no single source of truth 
for those secrets. And when somebody leaves the company, it's unclear what data they had access to for how long they had access and if they still retain that access. So if you imagine something very simple like an API key to some third-party service, how do you know that an engineer who left the company no longer has access to that service? Perhaps that service exposes some type of logging, but if they don't, how can you identify if that API key is still being used? And worse, who is going to take the time to log into all of those websites and regenerate those tokens and then redistribute them and make sure everybody has the new tokens? So that's one of the problems of pre-secret 1.0. The second problem that's closely related is this break glass procedure that we like to refer to. Uh, it comes from the notion that you know when there's a fire, you have to break the glass to get to the fire extinguisher. And the idea there is once you've detected a break, a uh, data breach, uh, leak, unauthorized access in your network, how do you mitigate data loss at that point? Um, or you know, data stealing, data getting into the wrong hands. And this is the break glass procedure. And really in the decentralized environments, one of the symptoms there is that there's no way to just revoke those secrets. Um, there's no visibility into who has access to what and how they're using that data. So when you do think that you have uh, a data breach, you can't safely revoke existing secrets without potentially taking all of your applications offline uh, or causing customer downtime. There are a couple fundamental vocabulary words that you discussed in the answer you just gave. And the first one is a token and the other one is a key. So could you describe, define what a token is and what a key is? Sure. Um, so this is a little bit of some vault terminology. Uh, if you're familiar with like the way a website works, when you log into a website, you put in your username and password and you, you know, click submit on the form, the server authenticates you. And from that point forward, you're no longer identified by your username and password. Instead, you, you get a cookie in the browser with a session ID. And that session ID is some type of UUID. And that's actually how you're identified moving forward through the application. In Vault, the token is that session ID. It's the thing that is generated from machine or human supplied information to uniquely identify a user throughout um, the rest of the operations they perform in Vault. So any and all requests that happen to Vault are going to need a token, except the login operation itself. The authentication itself doesn't need a token because that's the, the process by which you acquire a token. Um, and the other question you asked? What is a key? Ah, so a key could refer to a number of things. Um, in Vault, we have this notion of protecting against both internal threats and external threats. So externally, Vault protects against you know, outside attackers by using state-of-the-art encryption, uh, AES-256. Um, but we really care about protecting against internal threats as well. And what I mean by internal threats are rogue employees, people leaving the company, or just unauthorized access, where you know not every single developer should have root access to every single machine. Vault uses an algorithm called Shamir's Secret Sharing. And the idea behind Shamir's Secret Sharing is that you generate a key, which is an encryption key, and that encryption key is actually broken down into a number of shares. So if you imagine I took um, like a physical key to unlock a door and I cut it into five pieces and I gave those five pieces to five of my friends, all five of them would have to come back together and we could super glue the key back together to unlock the door or unseal the vault in this case. 
Shamir's secret sharing algorithm is very similar to that, except the only difference is we don't need all of those pieces to come together. We only need a, a minimum threshold to come together. So even though I cut the key into five pieces, the way the algorithm works is that, let's say any three of them could come back together to regenerate the master key, which can then be used to unseal the vault. And when the vault is sealed, just like a bank vault, when a, when a bank vault is sealed, you can't get in and out, you can't access the safety deposit box or any of the money inside, vault behaves the same way with its barrier. Whenever the vault is sealed, vault itself doesn't actually know the encryption key. You can't get any of the data out and you can't write any new data in. It's only once the vault is unsealed or opened that you're able to read and write data provided you have the permission to do that. So when you distribute these key shares or shards to the people in the organization, you prevent one person from having full reign or control in the system. And Shamir's secret sharing algorithm is customizable. So you can have 10 key shares with two people who have to enter their key, or you can have 100 key shares and 50 people need to enter their key. Uh, it's entirely configurable based off the size of your organization uh, and your security requirements. <laughs> One thing I always like to bring it back to the real world is if you've ever seen one of those movies where like the president of the United States or the prime minister uh, have to like enter a bunch of codes to disarm a nuclear missile. Um, that's actually Shamir's secret sharing algorithm in, in Hollywood or in movies. Um, it's, it's actually the same process that's being used. Yes, absolutely. And I understood that analogy when I was preparing for this. I thought it made a lot of sense. And I want to talk about Vault in more detail, but I think I should come back to talking more about the secret management 1.0 stuff, because we're kind of talking about the solution to a problem before talking in detail about the problem itself. So, you know, you, you've, we've started talking about Vault in in terms of how it actually works, how it protects secrets. But let's let's come back to the idea, like, how... How have, has the software industry typically protected this type of secret or sensitive information that you talked about at the beginning of this conversation? I think it really varies, Jeff. Um, you know, some people are using a database and then they have an encryption key and, you know, they're built their own type of system for managing this data. Um, some people are putting it in plain text, you know, to be totally honest, some, some startups don't follow the best security practices of the industry. So... They're just dumping all of that data in plain text. Um, it, it's really, you know, pre-secret management, it's, it's really an unsolved problem prior to Vault. And there are a number of solutions that'll get you halfway there, but nothing will get you 100% of the way there. Um, you know, a good example is there's two um, identities that need to access secrets. The first is a human. I need to be able to get API keys and credentials to access services but then machines, my applications, my laptops, my, my devices need to be able to get credentials as well so that they can talk to a database or talk to some third-party service. And a lot of the solutions out there only cover one facet. Um, you know, you have tools like LastPass and 1Password, which really solve that operator access or that human access really great. But then there's no way for a machine to get those secrets back out. And then you have tools that are really great for uh, computers to access data, but they're not operator friendly. There's no way for a developer to get a credential to log into AWS, for example. So Vault really takes both of those ideas and puts them into a single system. And the way uh, it's different than traditional secret management is that traditional secrets are static, meaning you, you write them down or you type them in or you put them in a system and they don't change moving forward. 
With Vault, secrets are highly dynamic. So Vault actually generates dynamic secrets for you and then manages leases and expiration. So instead of having a database credential that's hard-coded into your application and lives for years, your application might get a database credential that's valid for 15 minutes, and then it gets a new credential after that. And this means that if that credential somehow makes it into the wild, it's probably expired by the time that an attacker gains access to it. And if not, you can revoke just that single credential by looking in the logs. So there, it sounds like the main problem that Vault is solving is not necessarily the idea that there was no solution to secret management in the past. It's more that there was this big fragmentation of different ways to manage secrets and Vault wanted to find a way to unify them into one tool. Would you say that's accurate? Um, I don't think that was the original goal. I think we definitely solved that problem, but the goal was really to provide a single solution for secret management in an organization. Hmm. So there are these configuration management tools like Chef or Puppet or Ansible or Salt, and you can use configuration management to give secret information out to your applications. Like if you have secret information stored in a database or on a text file or whatever, you can use these configuration management tools to kind of unify these different things and glue everything together. What is problematic about using configuration management to manage your secrets? I think there's two problems that we have to identify there. The first is that those systems aren't really designed to store secrets. So um, I know Chef has encrypted data bags. I know Puppet has encrypted Hira. I'm not super familiar with Ansible and Salt Solution, but really they're using one encryption key to encrypt all of the data. So if an attacker is able to brute force that encryption key or gain access to the Chef server or the Puppet master, they can brute force that and get access to all of the data regardless of permissions. There's no concept of ACLs or um, a permission-based model, so everybody has access or doesn't have access. The second and more problematic uh, problem with using configuration management is that it's simply not designed for that use case. So when you generate a secret, how do you get that secret into configuration management? So if we take Chef, for example, because it's the one I'm most familiar with, You can give Chef a database credential, but ultimately a human had to generate that database credential to put it in the encrypted data bag to upload it to the Chef server so that the machines and the nodes would be able to have access to it. That means that that operator, the person who generated those credentials to put them in the data bag, knows those credentials. You have absolutely no visibility into that fact he or she could write them down, store them in a note application, and then whenever they're ready to leave the company, they could go rogue and download all of your data, and you have no visibility into that operation. That secret is also valid forever. Vault's approach is a little bit different. Because configuration management tools run on some sort of interval, or if you're using the immutable infrastructure paradigm, they only run you know, on the machine image creation. They don't run at runtime. They don't modify the machine or the image at runtime. Once those secrets are written, they're, they're effectively static forever. Vault's approach is that these secrets are very short-lived, even for things like SSL certificates. Instead of having SSL certificates that live on for years and years and years, we can have SSL certificates that expire in minutes or hours, thus reducing the attack surface and the probability for a leak. And we can always revoke sooner if we think that we have a data breach. So another problem that you touched on that you're trying to solve with Vault, that HashiCorp is trying to solve with Vault, 
is that older systems have poorly defined break glass procedures. You touched on this a little bit earlier. What is a break glass procedure and, and why do these get applied? So a break glass procedure is ultimately the worst of the worst that can happen to your organization. It's like the equivalent of like the nuclear bomb for security people. It's this idea that you have a data breach and however you've identified that is is really on a per organization basis. But you've detected an intrusion on your network. You think that your data is being breached. How do you stop the hemorrhaging? How do you put out the fire? How do you prevent the fire from spreading further? And that break glass procedure in you know, pre-vault is really undefined. You know, how do I revoke every single secret in my organization? How do I have visibility into who has what secrets and what is going to be the impact of me doing so? In vault, we have a number of break glass procedures. One, you can seal the vault. That's kind of the nuclear option. That means that no requests are going to be served and all existing credentials are just going to be held. You can revoke credentials. So if you think that your database passwords have been compromised, you can revoke all database passwords. And other passwords in the system will continue to operate just fine, but your database passwords will all need to be regenerated, which Vault can handle for you. In a pre-Vault world, trying to identify that situation and then the cascading effects of performing those operations is really difficult because you don't have a centralized audit log and you don't have a good architecture to identify where these secrets are being used. So in order to solve these problems that we have been talking about, HashiCorp developed a vault, and we've kind of been poking around the edges of vault, but could you give me a, a definition, wrap up what the product does and uh, what purposes it serves? Sure. Vault is an open source tool for secret management and distribution. That's the, the uh, TLDR for vault. It has basically four main um, components or pillars, if you will. Um, the first we already talked a lot about a little bit is that internal and external threat model. The second is the dynamic secret or secret acquisition engine. Uh, and what I mean there, we can talk about this more, is that Vault can actually generate uh, credentials for you. So it can generate database usernames and passwords or Amazon IAM credentials for you automatically based off of policy. Uh, it has a really state-of-the-art and unique to secret management system for leasing, renewal, and revoking secrets. So secrets in Vault are treated much like a DNS entry, if you will, where secrets have a TTL, and they're only valid for that period of time. And after that TTL, you have to request new secrets. And then the last pillar is this really powerful auditing backend. And this is really important because... You know, secret management and security in general is about being, you know, as forward and secure as possible. But at the end of the day, we can't possibly prevent against every single data breach. The NSA is always going to be smarter. So we have to find a way to identify these secrets and these breaches when they occur. And that's where the auditing backend really comes in. And every request and response in Vault is logged in that audit backend. And that enables you to quickly react and identify what's happening in the system. Vault gives me this secure way to store my secrets that you're talking about. Give me a simple example for how I would store a secret. Maybe it's you want to talk through a database password or a password to um, some web internal web uh, platform. What, whatever you think would be a good example of a secret that you would want to store with Vault. So let's take the, the simplest example that I like to use. Uh, let's say you're a company and you have Wi-Fi. 
right? And you need to get the Wi-Fi code to everyone in the company so that when they're on site, they can access the internet. Vault has a number of secret backends, and one of those secret backends is the generic secret backend. And the way it behaves is just an encrypted key value store. So all you would do is you would start up a Vault server, and you would run Vault write, which is the command to write a secret. And then the path that you would give it is completely up to you. So I, in this case, would do secret slash Wi-Fi. And then I would say value equals, and I would paste in whatever value we've given to the company Wi-Fi access code. Then when an employee wants access to the Wi-Fi, he or she would run a vault read, which is the read operation, with that same path, so secret slash Wi-Fi, and they would get back the plain text value. So it behaves and feels a lot like you're working with Redis or Memcache, this particular backend does. But under the hood, all of that data is encrypted with the state-of-the-art encryption technology. So if an attacker were somehow in your building, they wouldn't be able to grab that data. They would have to brute force decrypt it, which would take a very long time with today's computers. So that's the simplest solution because that's a static secret. Vault also has dynamic secrets, which are secrets that change over time. So once we write that Wi-Fi password, it's good forever, unless somebody goes and manually changes it. Database credentials, on the other hand, have the ability to change dynamically. And what happens here is you give Vault root permissions or admin or whatever you want to call it to your database. So let's use Postgres as an example. You give Vault the credentials to the Postgres user, which is like the super user in Postgres. And then you tell Vault how to create a user. So you give it the SQL command that you want it to run whenever it creates a user. Vault will generate a username and password that have high entropy. It'll insert them into the database and then return you the username and password. And then after some configured lease period, maybe 15 minutes or a half an hour, Vault will revoke those credentials from the database and it can generate new ones as well. So in this scenario, after an operator has configured Vault to talk to Postgres, a developer or an application can read from a path in Vault, like PostgreSQL, creds, and they can get a username and password that's good for connecting to the Postgres database, but only for a short period of time. And then after that time is up, they'll need to request new credentials or renew their existing credentials, just like a DHCP lease. And you can tell Vault to delete that user also, or did, did the credentials just get revoked? So in the break glass scenario, you can delete those credentials early. If you delete the lease, the associated secret with the lease is also deleted. So if we think that, let's just say Bill, Bill is a rogue employee, um, Bill got fired, we can revoke all of Bill's secrets very easily in Vault using the prefix revoke-prefix command. And that'll allow us to effectively revoke every credential that Bill has ever created in the system without going and logging into a million different services. And if so, what if I just wanted to have a policy where every time uh, I want to do database reads, I'm going to create a new user with some some new high entropy user with a lease of one hour or two hours. And so what I'm wondering is if I can just make that request to Vault, like, hey, I want to access the database for an hour and Vault will interface with Postgres to the degree where Vault literally makes the user in Postgres, and then once that uh, once that you know hour long lease is up, Vault will delete the user. I guess I'm trying to get at the at a sense of like 
how much is Vault actually touching my other programs and interacting with them, doing creates and reads and stuff? Yeah, so that scenario you just described is exactly what would happen. Um, you would make a request to Vault. That transaction during that request, Vault would connect to Postgres. It would create the user. It would return that user to the requester, the person who issued the request. And then after the lease is expired, Vault will go into Postgres and delete that user. And one thing Vault does kind of as an additional security measure is if the backend supports it, which Postgres does, Vault will actually create the user with an expiration. So in Vault, there's this, uh, or sorry, in Postgres, there's this um, clause that you can pass when you create a user called valid until with a date or a timestamp. So when Vault creates a user in Postgres, it actually tells Postgres, hey, this user is only valid for an hour or two hours. Then if an attacker was able to take Vault offline somehow, the, the actual underlying system, Postgres, would still revoke the credential. Okay, I understand. So in, in the Wi-Fi example that you gave, so basically the Wi-Fi password is stored in Vault, and if I'm a new engineer working at the company, uh, I join and I, uh, I say, you know, uh, Vault, uns- what is it? I-, I forget the name, but Vault, give me the Wi-Fi password. So, so if two people get that password at the same time, so I, you know, uh, Alice gets the Wi-Fi password and Bob gets the Wi-Fi password, and then they both use it. Um, does that, in some sense, like take away some of the auditability of of Vault, or is that is that actually a problem? Maybe I'm just I'm just trying to like suss out the the simpler example to make sure I understand this correctly. No, that's a great question, and I th- I think maybe we skipped a step which might help answer that. So whenever you communicate with Vault, as I said earlier, you have to get a token. The same way that whenever you go onto like Facebook, you have to enter your username and password before you can perform any operations on the system. With Vault, in your scenario, both Alice and Bob would have to authenticate to Vault. And there's a number of ways they can do that, username and password, um, or we have like GitHub and LDAP. So let's just say LDAP, because let's pretend they work at a big company. So their manager has added them to LDAP, they have their LDAP credentials, they vault off with their LDAP credentials, that gives them back a token, and from that point forward, we've identified them by their LDAP credential. So in the audit log, we'll specifically see that Bob made a request to the Wi-Fi password and that Alice made a request to the Wi-Fi password. So you're uniquely identified with that credential. The same way in a web application, even though you're identified by a session ID, that's tied back to your identity in the system, whether that be some table in the database or some third-party OAuth provider. Got it. So... Let's say I've got all my secrets stored on Vault and I have a new employee joining my company. Is is the general operating procedure that you have some kind of protocol for what secrets you give that new employee access to and then you tell the employee like, hey, if you want Wi-Fi, you enter this, here's, here's the key for, for, I mean, in terms of the key value terms. And if you tell if you need access to the user database, here's the key that you look that you get to find this. Or how exactly does that work? Like you onboard a new employee, how do you give them? How do you tell them like what they do to access Vault and what credentials do you give them? So everything in Vault is role based, R O L E. So as an operator or the administrator of Vault, you very early on make decisions about how you want to structure the data. 
And roles are mapped to policies. And policies define what permissions you do and do not have in the system. So in terms of how you gain access to things, um, if we take the LDAP example, you can map policies to the OU that you live in in LDAP. So you can say anybody who's in the developer's OU gets access to this set of secrets in Vault. Then you can either rely on some documentation or word of mouth, or you can use the Vault list command, L-I-S-T, which will show you which things you have access to based off of your current authentication. So that's how you can identify the secrets and the paths that you have access to read from. What are the other advantages of this, having this unified interface to accessing our secrets? Because this seems like such a powerful, useful utility. So tell me some of the other advantages that I might not be thinking of. So for me, you know, when you take security out of it, let's just pretend Vault isn't a security tool at all. Um, The one thing I really love about Vault is that provides a single API for me to talk to a whole bunch of things that I normally have a tough time remembering how to talk to. So I always forget the SQL command for creating a Postgres user or a MySQL user. It's like always a little bit different. Sometimes you need double quotes. Sometimes you need single quotes. In Vault, you can figure it once. You don't remember it anymore. Yeah, it's super secure, but I love the fact that I can say Vault read uh, Postgres creds and it gives me back credentials and I don't have to think about that process. The same thing with generating AWS credentials. I don't have to log in to console.aws.amazon.com and click a whole bunch of buttons just to generate an AWS access key pair. I can just run Vault read uh, AWS creds and get back AWS credentials. And to me, that's the coolest part of Vault is that it provides an abstraction on top of really an infinite surface area of credential-based systems. So anything that I need to get a credential from Vault could theoretically provide a secret backend for if it has an API. So any third-party service, databases, web applications, and and some of the really cool things that you might not think about, like PKI or certificates, Vault can act as a certificate authority, or SSH. So internally, um, I don't have like a public-private key that gets installed on every server using Chef or Puppet. Instead, we use Vault SSH, which generates uh, secure one-time passwords, So anytime I want access to a system, I vault SSH into that system with my authentication. That's verified against the vault server that I'm allowed to do that. It generates a secure one-time password, logs into vault. That whole process is audited as well as the operations that I perform during that session. And this way, we don't have to worry about distributing public and private keys. And you don't have to worry about dealing with configuration management of adding or removing those keys. This seems like such a useful tool. What are some similar tools that existed before Vault? Um, That's a good question. So I already mentioned a few, um, particularly around the operator side of things or the the human side of things. So you have tools like um, 1Password, LastPass, which are really geared towards a pretty UI with a web interface designed for one or two people who are sharing passwords. We already talked about Chef and Puppet um, and how kind of they're different there. You have things that solve like a a part of the problem. So Amazon AWS has this solution called KMS, Key Management System, where they provide encryption as a service, basically. They generate an encryption key. They manage the key rotation for you. Um, Vault does that, and that's actually only one tiny little piece of Vault. It's called the Transit Backend in Vault. 
Uh, and that's where Vault can act as an encryption as a service type tool. Um, there's a popular tool by Square, the uh, credit card processing company called KeyWiz, uh, K-E-Y-W-H-I-Z. The primary difference between uh, KeyWiz and Vault is that um, KeyWiz presents uh, what's called a Fuse file system, which makes KeyWiz look like a series of folders on a machine. So it's more geared towards uh, machines. And what happens is when you mount KeyWiz, for lack of a better word, you get secrets that look like they're stored on disk, but they're really not. Um, That's the way the Fuse file system works. Because of this, um, it's not exactly operator friendly, and it doesn't have support for that like pluggable backend system where you can generate dynamic secrets. So it's still primarily a static storage secret engine. Additionally, none of the other solutions that existed out there really handle that internal threat model. So a lot of the existing solutions are really great about external threats, using state-of-the-art encryption, making sure they have key rotation, timeouts, etc. But they don't do a really good job of that internal threat. Like, how do I protect, protect from one person knowing all the secrets or going rogue or causing damaging operations uh, if they get mad or angry or just having a bad day? Right. And the mode of that kind of internal monitoring, if I'm correct, is this detailed audit log. Is that correct? Yes. Okay, so why is it so useful to have a log for how people are accessing secrets? I mean, obviously, there's like, you know, in a worst case scenario, you know, you can you can figure out how people are doing this. But is, is there a reason to use this on a day to day basis? Or is it more of a precautionary measure? So the vault audit log, which is in JSON, so it's machine parsable, uh, is really one of the first things that you should enable and configure out of the box. The Vault audit log is going to do a lot for you. As an operator or an administrator of Vault, it's going to help you identify whenever Vault is performing badly. So if it's performing um, slow or whatever, using lots of memory, the audit log is going to help you identify that. As a security expert, the audit log can be fed into some third-party system that does anomaly detection, something like Splunk or some third-party service that'll detect anomalies and use machine learning to identify abnormal patterns over time. And this is super powerful, especially in a large organization where you know you can't sit there and read every single line that comes through the audit log. What's really helpful about the audit log is that if an unauthorized action takes place because of you know a bad policy or you know somebody made a typo, whatever it might be, you have a record of that, and you actually have a record of the secrets that it generated. Uh, they're shod using an HMAC SHA, so you can't reverse engineer them. But it allows you to go through and revoke those secrets uh, using what are called token accessors. So if somebody does make a mistake, you have a history of everything that's happened. So the audit log is really like the equivalent of your bash history file for the entire Vault server. It allows you to go back and look at the operations that took place, and it allows you to either replay them or revoke them, undo them. Uptime is very crucial for a system like Vault because you obviously need Vault to be up all the time so you can access these great things that are behind your secrets. What is the distributed systems model of Vault that ensures high availability? Sure. So the way Vault works is it has what's called a storage backend. And that's just as the name implies. That's the durable storage where data is written. In order for Vault to be highly available, 
the storage backend needs to also be highly available. And what that means is that Vault itself doesn't actually have high availability built in. Instead, it has support for high availability through the storage backend. So for example, if you're using the file system backend, there's no high availability for that because there's no way to share a file system among the Vault servers. If you're using the console backend, which does support high availability because it supports leader election, Vault can actually run as a cluster and write data to console to store the data in console. Similarly, etcd, which supports um, leader election, would allow you to use the HA backend. In high availability mode, what happens is Vault acquires a lock using the leader election algorithm provided by the storage backend. And then one of those vaults becomes the leader and the rest of them become a follower. So it's a kind of a traditional HA, um, one leader, one follower. If in the event the leader dies, you know, somebody unplugs it, it has a crash, whatever it might be, any of the other followers can take over. The overall mission of HashiCorp was explained some by Mitchell Hashimoto in the interview that I did with him several months ago is a really popular episode. Um, so if anybody's listening to this and they like this episode, I encourage them to check it out. From your point of view, what is the overall mission of HashiCorp and why why are the tools that HashiCorp is building becoming so popular? Um, from my perspective, I always like to describe HashiCorp as a tool that makes your life easier, um, a company that makes tools that make your life easier. Um, my marketing team would like like me to tell you that HashiCorp builds tools that automate the modern data center, um, which is a lot of buzzwords. But for me, I like to describe HashiCorp as, as a company that solves real problems. Um, we never build a tool that isn't solving a problem that we've had on our own. You know, you look at Vagrant, Terraform, Console, Vault, Nomad, they're solving problems that we've identified and we feel the pains of those problems. And because we feel the pain and we understand the use case, it allows us to build a really solid solution. And I think that's the reason that people really love our products is that we're not building something to try to make, you know, a million dollars. We're building something because it solves a problem and we wanted to solve that problem really, really well. How does, uh, how does Vault fit into the overall ecosystem of those types of products that you're solving? Because obviously, you know, you as you mentioned, HashiCorp builds products that solve real problems. But the other thing is that they fit together very nicely. I think it's iconic in the fact that Vault can sit on top of console and get high availability from console. Um, so tell me more about how Vault fits into the overall ecosystem of tools being built by HashiCorp. Sure. It might be helpful to take a step back just in case any of the listeners aren't familiar with the full tool suite. Um, so on the development side of things, let's take a step back. If we split an organization into three parts, um, application lifecycle has kind of three phases, development, operations, and then runtime. On the development side of things, we have Vagrant and Packer. So Vagrant is our open source tool for building uh, automated development environments, uses VirtualBox or VMware under the hood, spins up a uh, virtual environment so you don't mess up your local laptop. You can make them distributed. And using Packer, you can have them mirror production as well. On the operation side of things, we have Packer 
which will help build automated machine images. It'll either push them into runtime using you know, AMIs or digital ocean droplets, Google compute images, or it'll push them into development using Vagrant boxes or um, you know, VM images. On the runtime side of things, we actually have three tools. Terraform, which is our open source tool for managing and provisioning infrastructure. Console, which is our distributed service discovery, health checking, and key value store. And then Nomad, which is our scheduler, uh, similar to you know, Kubernetes or Mesos. Those three tools make up runtime. So where does Vault fit in kind of that paradigm? Well, in development, you need access to secrets as a developer. I need API keys, I need database credentials, I need access to the staging environments, I need access to sample data, I need access to microservices, whatever it might be. During operations, we need a different kind of credential. So if we're building Amazon machine images with Packer, we need access keys in order to communicate with Amazon. Vault provides that to the operations team, but in an automated manner. So it connects with Packer to get those credentials. And then in runtime, we have secrets that we should only know at runtime as well. Things like database passwords or you know, Vault SSH, which I described earlier, which would only be used at runtime. So if you were to kind of draw a picture, and you know, Jeff, I can actually give you a, a diagram if you want to add this to the show notes. You have, you know, sure. first you have Vagrant, which is the development. And then if you read from left to right, you'll have Packer. And then you'll have the runtime tools, Terraform, Console, and Nomad. And Vault really lives on the bottom there across all three pillars. It's really a horizontal tool because it's solving so many different problems in different ways. I understand. There have been some listeners who have asked about how distributed companies work, where the employees are all over the world. And HashiCorp is obviously an example of this. What are the pros and cons of being a distributed company? This is always my favorite question. Um, so we're distributed across many time zones. Uh, I personally live in the East Coast. Uh, so I live in Pittsburgh. We have a large number of people who live on the West Coast, a lot of people in the Midwest. And then we also have uh, some people who split their time between Europe and the United States. I think one of the most uh, exciting things for me is that you know we have the ability to work from home or anywhere. I spend a lot of time on airplanes and I get a lot of work done when I'm not at home. And that flexibility is really cool to me. Um, I think that allows us to recruit top talent um, because a lot of people don't want to pick up and move to go into an office every day and giving them the ability to work from home, uh, kind of set their own hours, work their own times really helps to make sure that we're acquiring the absolute best engineers that, um, that are out there. I think one of the challenges with that are time zones and work times. You know, very early on as a company, we said, you know, we don't want to have that startup mentality that you have to work 150 hours a week. So we have a lot of people who have kids and families and they have obligations. And, you know, they do work a traditional like nine to five with a lunch break. And because of that, there's not a lot of overlap and FaceTime with people. So one of the challenges we do have is, you know, trying to schedule an all company meeting across nine time zones um, is, is, is challenging to say the least. Um, but, you know, we make it work and, you know, we record everything. We've gotten a lot better as we've grown about being asynchronous and making sure that communication is spread across the company and make sure that nothing is synchronous, meaning you don't have to be present to get information. Uh, we have lots of distribution channels for information, and, I, and I, that's really critical being in so many different time zones with so many different people. Yeah, and I think that this, you know, 100, you know avoiding the 150 hour 
work week uh, meat grinder organization has really become an, a competitive advantage for the types of companies that are enacting it. Um, like I think you, know, you really start to see diminishing returns when you have those kind of demands out of your employees. And conversely, if you have a more you know welcoming policy, like you can have a nine to five and whatever, like the the people who really who want to overwork and who will naturally overwork and who will uh, work at odd hours because they are really loving what they will do, the low pressure environment will bring out the best in what they do. So it really, you know, I think this movement to distributed companies um, and and lower lower work uh, strenuous policies are uh, these these are things that are like really positive for the the programming ecosystem as a whole. Um, really, just add some liberation. So, um, okay, well, um, I guess maybe we could close off by just telling me telling me a little bit about your work. What do you do at HashiCorp, and what is what are your goals uh, as an individual within the company? So that's a great question. Um, I should have started off with this, I guess. Um, I've been with HashiCorp just a little under two years. Um, so I'm one of the first employees, you know, single digits. Um, it's four or five, depending on who you ask. Um, I am an engineer by trade. So I, you know, I went to school. I have um, statistics, economics, and information systems degrees from Carnegie Mellon. Um, I joined as an engineer. I wrote a lot of the commercial product that we offer, Atlas, um, and then the enterprise offerings around our open source tools. Um, I work on all of the tools. You won't find a single HashiCorp product that my name isn't in the Git log, um, at least right now. Um, more recently, starting this year, uh, I've broadly taken over the responsibility of education and evangelism. Um, so I run all of our public and private training offerings. Um, and I do a lot of getting on a stage and podcasts and those types of things. Uh, and I really enjoy it. And then one of my other responsibilities, um, which doesn't actually fall in my job, but I, I really like to do it. And I'm glad that HashCorp has given me the opportunity to do it is um, working with our events planner um, to, to plan HashiConf. So I'm very involved in both HashiConf EU and HashiConf US um, to, to help plan that conference and you know really give back to our community and our customers. Did you say that HashiCorp is four to five employees today? No, sorry. I was employee number four or five, depending on who, oh, depending okay. on who you ask. Um, we're, we're right around 40 to 50 people today. Okay, cool. All right. Well, Seth, thanks for coming on the show. I know you're exhausted from recently landing uh, from Munich, but uh, I really want to thank you for coming on. And if you ever want to come on in the future to talk about any new HashiCorp developments, I know the listeners love HashiCorp and they really want to hear more about it. So you're welcome on anytime. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I'll send you some uh, some links for the show notes as well as those, those diagrams that I promised. <laughs> okay. Have a great day. I'll talk thanks. to you later. Bye-bye. Okay, see ya.